0: I, 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 fired from Kane, now we ain't got no shame. So we started the pod, Chuck Yates needs a job. Hey, everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates needs a job, the podcast. In my never ending quest to talk about stuff I know absolutely nothing about i know nothing about Urcot, but i tweet about it all the time so i want to welcome my guest campbell faulkner on from otc global holdings to actually tell me where i'm wrong and where i'm really stupid about ERCOT. so thanks for coming on yeah
1: um thank you for having me on uh welcome ERCOT went from being something nobody knew what the hell it was to kind of unfortunately, the problem child. Um, so I work for OTC Global, we're a commodity, interdealer or broker. So get that part out of the way. We kind of facilitate block trades in between institutions. So we see the large block trades and we are not in retail. We don't have an interest and in, we frankly don't care about the different generators and policy and things like that, outside of the fact that it affects Texas customers. Uh, so I'm the senior vice president there, I run the data and analytics and also help run the technology division. We pay attention to it because we have a lot of load service customers, a lot of hedge funds, a lot of people interested in what is ERCOT. So, you know, most people now think of it as the uh, not-reliability commission of Texas. ERCOT is basically the entity that has been tasked by the state of Texas to manage our own independent power grid. So unlike the rest of North America, outside of Quebec, uh, we do have to make that caveat we operate our own independent grid. It's quite different. The Eastern and Western interconnects span many states. They're huge. They have large control districts and regions. If we need to, we can define some of those because, unfortunately, a lot of the word salad that's in both news media and, frankly, what we'll talk about here is confusing as hell. But ERCOT manages the Texas Reliability Entity, which doesn't even cover all of Texas. There's parts that touch different things. El Paso is not in ERCOT. But ERCOT manages the bulk of power and load for the Texas Interconnect, which covers Houston, Dallas, Austin, and so on. So the bulk of Texans live in ERCOT. Most Texans didn't really know about ERCOT until February 21. We had days of rotating outages, which went from bad to worse. People unfortunately passed away. It was bad. Now we're in another situation this summer, again, due to a wide variety of reasons that we're worried about how much capacity we have. You're being asked you know, most afternoons, the last couple of days, to reduce consumption. Pull back your thermostat, turn off your lights. Again, why? Well, large number of reasons, but the management and grid management entity, ERCOT, is trying to make sure that we don't have to shed power, we don't have to shed load.
0: Well, let's, let's break down what you mean by grid management. So, so we have ERCOT, we have entities that generate power, we have transmission. I think everybody kind of understands you got to have wires to get from the power to certain places. Is that the grid? Is that what we're talking about? Or have I dumbed it down too much?
1: No, no. And see, that's, that's the problem is it's, you know, how the best way to say it is there's going to be generators, which basically service the load. Load is industrial, you know, homes, things like that. People who are consuming power. Then we have the transmission that interconnects it. Variety of different entities across the state own it. It's no longer a, what we consider monolithic regulated market. We now have competitive power, so that's why you get to choose on poweredchoose.org. Not a plug for the state, but just what it is. Your retail energy provider. There's a wide variety of these different apparatuses that connect. If you live in Austin or San Antonio, you are going to be using a municipal power provider or Denton, Texas versus Houston, which I don't even know who mine is right now, which is bad. so, what really is the grid in Texas is both the generators and then basically the, the load service, which is going to be the lines delivering load to you, or probably electric service to you to serve your load. Your load is your air conditioning, your computer, so on and so forth. Or if you have a Tesla, your electric car. That is kind of the bare bones of what is going on. ERCOT makes sure that generators fire up to service that load, make sure that the grid is balanced. And if there is a severe imbalance, they will actually tell people to turn off customers. And that is all to keep the grid stable, keep frequency stable, all the things that really matter to keep power on. Um, And unfortunately, if a grid operator is doing its job really well, you have no idea who they are, and you literally never talk about them. They're doing it poorly, you become very angry and irate, and then people start tweeting at ERCOT saying, why are the lights off? So it's kind of one of those, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, you don't really know about them unless they screw up bad.
0: Right. So, okay. So basically that is ERCOT. That's the grid system. Um, let's talk maybe a little bit of, of history on that just to, to, and only because I went to Wikipedia this morning and looked at it. So I'm going to look like I know something, but it was, it was back in the 1930s when people started um putting together grids through the monopolies. I mean, that was one of FDR's big thing, the electrification of the United States. And Texas at that choice, at that point, made the choice not to be regulated by the feds. So this is why Texas ERCOT stand you know, services 90% of Texas, like you said, but is actually not regulated by the federal government. I think, is that right?
1: It's backdoor regulated. So what they say when they're not directly regulated is they're not directly under FERC purview. So Federal Energy Regulatory Commission deals with basically interstate energy transmission, pipelines, things like that. It gets far more complicated than that. There are also NERC rulings, which NERC is kind of a supranational entity that touches Mexico, Canada, and the United States, started in the United States. Really what makes Texas separate and unique is that it is not part of the Eastern or Western interconnect. So they are not part of the broader FERC overview, broader FERC approval. Now, that does not mean that ERCOT just does whatever the hell it wants. There are standards, uh, NERC standards that ERCOT follows. There's a lot of backdoor regulation for multiple reasons um, because of both power, exchange trading, and things like that. So there's it's kind of murky. The best way to say it is, FERC doesn't have its direct thumb on it, but it's definitely in the room, uh, gotcha. kind of watching closely. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. And FERC regulation in and of itself does not mean or beget grid reliability, a.k.a. Right. the 2003 Northeast Blackout. Right, Highly regulated, whole nine yards. The point is that ERCOT stands alone, and we mentioned Quebec because they're kind of their own standalone island grid too where we are not interconnected with AC phase. We only have DC, so we really do operate as our own distinct grid, our own distinct control, whole nine yards. If we're having a shortfall, we can't import anything more than what our DC ties can import. So it's not like we can import across a thousand different points through Texas. We can only import through four, technically five, but there's four active. So that makes us very unique. We really do look like
0: an island in the middle of the ocean in terms of electrical power. So so when we think of kind of regulation we really look to Austin. I mean this is the correct. state house. And as I understand it, but correct me, basically when George Bush was governor, we did a big overhaul on the grid and we basically created a competitive power generation market. What what happened then? So there was a multi-step process to basically
1: best way to say it is I use liberalized kind of in a very classic liberalized, not a, you know. Uh, the 19th century yes, definition. 19th of, century yes, 19th century definition. They liberalized the power market. So the power markets before were essentially monolithic. You have basically your generator, your transmission, and basically. That your,
0: was HLMP. Yes, so that was coal, Houston Power Light. They had their own Correct. wires. Yeah. They,
1: they had their own grid. Obviously, ERCOT existed before that. Basically, Texas kind of largely by the 70s, is fairly interconnected within our own little grid. We could move power from uh, basically South Texas to Houston and across. But outside of that, we didn't have that, where we had people building independent power plants. That was a model that kind of spread out of California. Set aside any political leanings you have in California, California kind of led the modern, um, I'm going to say, investment paradigm in electric power, where we're going to build an independent power plant, Gas PowerPoint, the guy who started ICE, Jeff Sprecher, that was really, really where he made his name in the beginning. And what we're going to do with that PowerPoint is we're going to then sell power into the market. So prior to that, prior to the liberalization of the Texas power market, this is step one before we get to retail. Was I have load service? I got to worry about it. I got to generate for my own customers. We're going to deliver to our own customers, and then we're going to bill our customers directly. That was the service model. Then in the '90s, we said, well, we're going to have a competitive power market. So there's just going to be power available. So we'll incentivize people to go build new plants and things like that. Power plants are exceptionally capital intensive. You know, if you're a regulated utility, you want to invest, but you don't really want to invest to the same degree that maybe private equity would. You're not looking for an edge. You kind of have a regulated business model. There's only so much money you can make being a regulated utility. So because of that, there was always kind of that tension of we didn't really have enough development. So the theory behind basically the deregulation of Texas was we'll get new, less expensive generation sources, which will lower prices competitively for Texans. We can argue if that's actually the case, largely it has been, but obviously there's other problems within that. And that was kind of the design of the original market liberalization was, we'll get independent generation, we'll have ERCOT, make sure that you know we can schedule that, and get it online, make sure that it's load service, So Houston Power & Light, now Reliant and uh, also a number of other entities, they can focus on what they want to specifically do, be it distribution, retail, et cetera. That kind of delinking doesn't mean that the entities didn't still own generation. It just meant that there was a more competitive market to drive prices down. Again, the the theory, not always perfect, but that was what 1994 was supposed to do.
0: Gotcha. Then... What happened? So basically, we said, okay, we've got all these we've got all these wires we're, that are utilities hooked together. We're going to allow independent power producers to pop up, throw electricity into that grid. They're going to be competing with each other. It's going to lower costs. So that happened. What happened on the retail side? Because I went from. I went from buying from HLMP to buying from 12 different companies over seven years, I think. So the best way to think about that is, uh, which is,
1: you know, if you're outside of maybe the, you know, energy industry, it's a little weird. Essentially, they turned um, the pipeline companies, the transmission companies into common carriers. Basically, we're going to buy power from the grid to load service our customers. I have to pay a transmission fee. You'll see a transmission fee in your bill uh, like I pay a transmission fee for living in the city of Houston, and that's because I'm essentially using uh, Reliance wires and things like or probably the old reliance wires um and things like that center point now um and so because of that, it looks kind of like a deregulated um, entity where basically I'm gonna go out and start a company. I'm gonna go get customers, I have to buy their load, I'm gonna buy power on the market. I then have to pay basically a, a schedule fee to basically get power to the customers. That's your retail energy distribution fee. And that's my new business. So what's the, what's the theory behind that? Well, if you have a monopoly, um, you're gonna get the same price across the entire zone. You also don't get the product mix you want. Um, a lot of people now wanna buy renewable mix, photovoltaic or wind. That's a product that a retail energy provider can offer. Uh, kind of one of the difficult parts of that market is you see a lot of inter- retail energy providers go bankrupt, gritty and so on, and a lot of others. Some some customers of mine along the way because it is so competitive and it's difficult. Um, I keep mentioning NRG because at least within Texas, they've kind of become the 800 pound gorilla. They buy a lot of these retail energy providers and then they resell it. So what they're really doing is they're getting in between the customer and basically the generators and also the power distribution and transmission, and they're basically hedging power for you. That's your standard plan, and that's one of the things a lot of folks kind of forgot when they were using people like Gritty. We're going to tamp on them a lot. Was that retail energy provider is essentially there to buy and then sell you a fixed price. So because of that, or maybe a variable price depending upon a certain different things. But if you go on Power to Choose, I'm going to get a 14 cent rate either per month or for a three year period. Whatever product mix they want to offer, they're there to basically buy power and hedge it for you so you don't all of a sudden accidentally pay what the LMP is, which yesterday spiked up to $3,000. I think so. Yeah, somewhere in there. But the point is, when it's hot and volatile, you as a consumer don't want to have to worry about ERCOT overall. You want to have a relatively fixed price every month that you understand you're not going to get a $3,000 power bill, you're going to get your $250 power bill. So that's really what the competitive market design of having all those retail providers was supposed to and tries to do. So, that's
0: sorry for kind of the no, long windedness. No, 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 that's really good because I used to work for Stevens, the Little Rock, Arkansas investment bank. And uh, John Jacoby, or Joe Jac- uh, John Jacoby, who invested all the Stevens man- money for years, used to always say, every bank will go broke. And the reason they go broke is their capital base is basically deposits that customers can take out any day. And then their assets are a five-year loan to Chuck, to Clayton, to go buy a car, right? And so we have $10,000 worth of deposits. We loan it to Chuck to go buy the car. He's paying us back over five years. When they take the $10,000 away, we go away (laughs) as a bank. And I think that's what we saw somewhat historically in the retail market is you would sell you you'd give a a one year fixed rate to your to your customers. And then if you didn't lock it as the retail provider, you're you, toast. You're toast, potentially. Yeah. Or you may, or you made a ton
1: of money if it dropped. Correct. I mean, the best way to think about it is if you're thinking about it in finance, you're selling. In theory, you should be selling, if you're a retail provider and you're doing it correctly, a fix-fix swap. So each each end is fixed. You kind of know your spread and your margin. Okay, it may be not great. So then the whole theory is we have to go get all these customers and we do it through scale. That's been a successful model. The other model has been we're going to fix it to the customer and then we're going to kind of float up and down. Okay, um, that's fine if you're naturally long or short. You're neither naturally long nor short. And by that, I mean, you are, you're naturally short if you're the retail energy provider. But the problem is if you're just trying to float it, you don't really have any asset exactly like you said with the bank. The only thing you're getting is that fee from the customer each month. That does not cover your entire net exposure. So if you're a smart retail energy provider, which to be honest, there's a lot of really smart people working in these companies. Oh, sure. For all the ones that have gone bankrupt, there's tons of others that have bright individuals. They understand this. They're hedging and doing things like that. Where I start, you know, crapping on a firm called Gritty, which thankfully ERCOT dissolved and said they can't operate anymore, they were passing the wholesale price onto you plus a small adder. So you, the retail customer, were just paying $1,000 a megawatt, $500 a megawatt that you're going to get for however many hours per day. So before, you know, well, in 2019, they had people saying, oh, well, you should maybe switch providers right before the winter storm. Gritty came out and said, oh, you should probably get on a fixed rate plan for you know, this next week. Bananas, you know, from a customer standpoint, it's really aggressive. I mean, there's even people within my firm. We're a trading firm. You know, we have bright individuals there who use Gritty because it was cheap, but they hadn't thought all the way through the complications of, oh, hell, if power prices spike, I'm toast. I may have saved 20% over the last year. I'll lose that plus a multiple in five minutes. So that's really where The competitive market has had a few failures like that. By and large, it's not. It's a good market. The retail energy providers are good guys. Unfortunately, you do have some of that lack of customer knowledge, um, which has not ended well. Um, And fortunately, there's, I think, more, especially since you winter storm URI, more of an emphasis from the Public Utilities Commission to ensure that there's not entities operating and doing that, Uh, because in theory, the customer knew what they were doing. Right. That is never worked in pretty much anything facing a retail average customer. I can't expect them to understand exactly how dispatch and ERCOT works and why they should
0: care. I mean, I graduated magna cum laude from Rice, and I will do my semi-flex uh, semi brag about that right now. I actually would read the contracts periodically from my electric provider, and I didn't understand it. No, you know? and, it, and, it, and it doesn't have, like I said, there were people at my firm
1: People who've been involved in the trading industry for years, people who know their stuff, really smart people, they didn't think about the fact that you're floating the LMP. so that's why the retail market gets some bad rap, largely because of a couple of bad entities. There's always going to be something like this. This is not you know California in 2001 with Enron entirely right. separate, right. It just It's bad for consumers if they do get, you know, surprise $5,000 power bills when they're expecting, you know, they were sold basically the promise that it was less expensive. So as part of the deregulated market, you kind of have all these moving pieces and then you have the market design of ERCOT. And when we say the market design of ERCOT, market design of the Texas Reliability Entity, uh, I'm using this specific language because there'll be somebody who knows this who will try to, you know, yell at us about it. But that's really where... A lot of the consumers get confused, uh, particularly if they're from out of state. They're thinking, well, I should just be paying one price. I get it from this, you know, the grid operator. It's all the same. Not really how it works here. Um, so there's a lot of good that's come of that. What we've had realistically up until the last 18, to 18 months to years, really inexpensive power prices in Texas. Further example, of that there would not be all the crypto miners moving here if our prices weren't cheap our relative spark spread dark spread and you know just general power prices are low um but consumers can get hurt that's why unfortunately if you work in the industry it's you know behooves us to try to not let that happen you know the less regulation the better not because you know we want zero regulation we don't need to have people filling out extra paperwork to go to a different grid operator if they're working in electric power so forth if you're a landman. You already know how bad it is to fill anything out for either the EIA or just state submissions. Right. (laughs) So trying to keep and control cost around that's good. So I'm not going to say it's incumbent upon us in the industry, but it's good to not only, you know, be out ordering consumers and things like that, because, you know, why does my mother care what the hell the power price is going to do in ERCOT? She just wants to buy power reliably, roughly know what it's going to cost if it's really hot in the summer and not pay a ridiculous bill. Right. And it's not insulting my mother. She just, why does she care about electric power? You yeah. know, I care because I work in it. Most people don't need to worry about it. And that's, that's kind of the difficulty of we have this grid operator. It failed. We blame ERCOT. We're mad at ERCOT.
0: ERCOT's bad. And right. that's not it at all. There's a lot of good folks who work there. So my one funny retail story, and then, I, then we'll, we'll go to Winter Storm Uriah's. So I buy this old house in Richmond, Texas, about seven years ago. And the previous 30 years, it had actually been a wedding reception venue, you know, old antebellum house. And the lady that had run the wedding reception venue hadn't done anything at the house for the previous two years. Unfortunately, she had been sick and uh, probably set the thermostat at 85 degrees and just kind of left it there, right? So I buy the house. So the first thing when I'm setting up electricity, I think I call Reliant. And they offer me, well, you know, for $500 a month, we'll give you as much electricity as you want. And I said, that sounds like a great deal. So I sign up for that program. It was a one-year contract. I drive a Tesla, so I'm charging my car. I keep the house at 65 degrees because it feels great. And it's an old house, so I'm air conditioning the whole neighborhood yes. that, through the uh, through the old house. So at the end of the year, I get a uh, letter that says, hey, your contract's up. Please call us. We need to you know, chat. And I had my assistant. I'm like, Stacey, will you call and just renew that? that? That's been a great deal. She calls, and the lady's like, oh, yeah, let's pull up that account number. I'm sure we're happy to. Oh, my God, what is he doing there? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, the, uh, the retailer lost money on me in uh, that scenario. They, they withdrew that offer to continue that contract. I actually have a similar
1: story, I'm not crapping on Reliant. Um, so I had a basically a spark spread plan. It was basically gas indexed because what was really cheap up until recently, natural gas. So I had exceptionally inexpensive uh, electricity. And then last fall, I was like, oh, no, gas prices are going up. Kind of had a view uh, of the market starting last summer. I was like, all right, we're going to get didn't think it would get quite as expensive as it did. But it's like we need to switch to a fixed price plan. Because Reliant for years have been trying to get me off this plan because it was not economic for them. So that's one of the difficulties of being a retailer. Or if you work at a retail energy provider and you may not be on that particular side of procurement, things like that, it's a hard business. And, you know, you can have a couple customers wipe out your profit from one hundred and fifty. Yeah. And and that's why we've seen kind of a consolidation across. And, you know, you'll see a lot of smaller retailer start up. They unfortunately go out of business. It's very competitive, very difficult. But the upside of that is it's saved consumers money. Uh, yeah. That competition really has benefited you benefited greatly from essentially a bad deal. Um, I'm not saying we want these companies to do bad deals for customers, but that competition
0: aspect really has. Kept it's the why they low. offered it in the first place. Correct. Competition. They, yeah. they,
1: they want you on that plan. They want to they want to get your load under management, and it works. It's it's a great business. Um, it's just if you mess up you're going to pay, pay the price. I mean, we had Brazos Valley Electric Co-op, one of the largest cooperative bankruptcies ever because they did not have basically their their power managed during Winter Storm Uri. Um, and that's one of the things is if you do have an aberrant, I use that in quotes, an aberrant event, man, you can go completely upside down overnight.
0: So we've basically covered what our cut is, how it works. We talked about deregulating power generation. We talked about deregulating the retail side. So I think we've covered kind of fundamentals. Now the issue, and it's URI related, it's Monday related, where I think, you know, four dozen, yeah, today, four dozen times in the last, you know, five years, ERCOT has sent out uh, load management type language on, hey, watch this and all that. How did we get there, and and I kind of want to know that because we're freaking Texans, <laughs> we ought to be able to run a grid. where Houston is the energy capital of the world. How did we? How did we get there? Sleepwalking,
1: um, sure. the entire all of North America and Europe. Well, Europe did, was a little more deliberate because of Germany, but largely by sleepwalking into it, um, the market design of ERCOT, um, and we can argue if energy only is the way to go versus having um, you know, basically paying for reliability and things like that and having, um, different market design. Our market design is energy only. So you get paid as a generator to generate via price signal. Um, it's supposed to be relatively pure. You know, if you're operating a peaker plan, you'll maybe run a couple, you know, hours a year. Okay. If it's operating at three or $4,000 a you know, megawatt hour. Oh, excellent. Yeah. We, you know, we'll make our entire year margin, your net peaker margin within that short period. That's great. That worked. Prior to really 2005. What's drastically changed through 2005 is the massive influx of renewables, particularly in Texas, but it's acute kind of all over the United States, simultaneously with the retirement of traditional coal plants and just in general, not what we call dispatchable build. Uh, dispatchable resources is something, if I send a telemeter signal, that thing's going to kick on. If it doesn't kick on, it's either because it's offline or it had an oopsie. Um, and some market designs very much punish them. Texas, it's a little complicated around it. Um, but essentially, it's, we need more power. We're going to deliver it. we're going to get it on. Well, the issue with renewables are, you can't dispatch them. We know roughly because of the weather, how much power we're going to generate today. When I was coming in, we were sub a megawatt on wind, or probably sub a gigawatt, sorry, which is very low.
0: Because what we've got... 30 gigawatts of of, of wind,
1: about so that's the name. I mean, that's approximately the nameplate. Nameplate's not reliability, you know, so on and so forth. There are a lot of complications, but that's exactly the point. If I have an 800 megawatt gas plant, I may be able to eke out 900 megawatts depending on if I'm willing to run turbines hot. Yeah, that's pretty dispatchable. Now, we could have this failure to dispatch like we did back during winter storm Murray. We're designed around summer peak, things typically. Don't fail to dispatch, and if they so, do, it's an
0: issue. So let, let's 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 really simplify this down because I think this is the crux of where you're going to go with this. Yeah. And I, and I have a tendency to agree. You have what we'll say a nuclear power plant. You have natural gas-fired generation. You have coal-fired generation. That's what you mean by dispatchable. Um, the best way to say it is: dispatchable resources are those
1: that. If I'm ERCOT and I call and say, get online, they're going to get online. And we're not going to guarantee it, but it's pretty damn close. We're going to say greater than 95% confidence. That unit's going to come online. It's going to provide, you know, 100 megawatts into the grid. Non-dispatchable resources. Again, there's a lot of complications around when you start yeah, talking and about And we can batteries. simplify it. Down. Yeah. If we're talking about non-dispatchable, just say photovoltaics, which is solar panels uh, and wind. Those are not dispatchable. If I call up a wind farm and say, hey, I need, you know, 50 megawatts, they're going to be like, you're going to get what you're going to get. We either have wind today or we don't. Or, in some cases, we'll overproduce. You know, it may be rated for 100 megawatts on average. We may produce 200 because we have a lot of wind today. So what that does, those non-dispatchable resources entering the grid mean that essentially when times when you really need to be able to control and demand things are online, you're kind of at the mercy of the weather. Right, and the issue with that is we've had Ercot load basically how much power we demand every day grow tremendously in the last twenty years i've
0: I've got some stats on that um if you look at our population just in Texas, we've gone in two thousand and one from just over twenty one million to almost thirty million today, so we're up, call it almost forty percent, and the retail electricity market parallels that almost directly it's we had a uh, 318 billion kilowatt hours in 2001 uh last year was 427 billion kilowatt hours so that's up call it 35 percent so it's almost paralleled with um so that's what's happened over the last 20 years correct and, and we've added a lot of generation it's been non-dispatchable
1: and so what that's done and, that, and that's all across north america and europe We've added generation because we've had low growth. We've had, you know, demand growth, which are good things. You know, typically one of the best ways to look at productivity, we were down 3% on load during, uh, you know, weather adjusted, but we were down about 3% during um, basically COVID. Why? Economic productivity was down. So low growth is a good thing. So a lot of folks who argue we need to be, you know, worrying about conservation, all this stuff. No, let's just dollars, dollars to donuts. Really what matters is, you look at economic utilization, you look at electrical growth, you look at demand. Those two things basically are correlates for each other. So the fact that our population's grown, good thing, says Texas is a great place. Secondly, the other good thing that's happened is we've had electrical demand growth, more economic output, we're becoming wealthier. Texas is a better place to live.
0: And that's standard of living. Standard we're, of living.
1: Right. I mean, the, the fact is, this is not 1950. Damn near everybody has air conditioning. Thank goodness. It's hot yeah. here. Um, 1950, when my grandfather was at University of Houston, he didn't have air conditioning. He didn't have air conditioning. I don't think until the 60s.
0: My parents uh, at Rice, uh, Dad, I believe, graduated undergrad in '62. Mom was '64. They didn't have air conditioning in the dorm. No, it's hot. It's hot. It's miserable. Yeah, this is this. Is, I mean, Houston is a hellish place.
1: Houston is relatively comfortable if you get from your air conditioned car into your air conditioned office and then you go back to your air conditioned home. Right. I don't care about 100 degrees nearly the way I would if I had to just open my windows and suffer. So because of all those, because we're wealthier, we can afford all that. We've had a lot of demand growth and we haven't replaced it with dispatchable, controllable
0: resources. So let me let me make one point here. You and I'll say it as a statement, but it's really a question for you. One of the things that I read somewhere is you've got a wind turbine out there. The wind's got to be blowing at least 10 to 12 miles per hour to even generate any electricity. That That's kind of number one. And number two, you probably got to be blowing, call it 20, 25 miles per hour to even get close to your nameplate capacity. Right. And so if we say we've got a gigawatt of wind over here, that's dependent on 25-mile-per-hour wind or 30-mile-per-hour wind. And there's even a, an upper limit where they won't be able to run beyond that. So I know we're getting kind of into some nuance and some subtleties there, but it's not as simple as just wind blowing or not blowing. It's how many miles per hour. Correct. And the other thing that's also
1: kind of – it's becoming more known, uh, even within kind of you know, my industry directly dealing with like electric power and commodities trading, inertia. So wind and photovoltaics are what are known as asynchronous generators. So why does that matter? Well, one of the most important things of our grid is it operates at 60 hertz. It's very predictable. That's basically the operating frequency of the grid. Asynchronous sources basically require a synchronous source to keep everything in line, keep all basically, to use a really nerdy way to say it, generator excitation, basically the magnetic fields and the generators rotating. Another thing. Photovoltaics, yeah, it does generate its own magnetic field because it's basically a DC inverter then hitting it, but that still needs a signal from the grid to operate. Wind turbines and most generation sources need power from the grid to create the magnetic field to generate power. So that's why asynchronous versus synchronous generators really matters. Asynchronous generator, gas turbine, nuke plant, things like that, coal plant, those are required to tie and we use the word tie, but tie in sync, So get the, basically the sine wave in sync, and then tie it into the grid so it can be used. Ancillary services is what we call the pricing mechanism in the grid. That costs money. And just adding wind and photovoltaics to the grid is not a free lunch. That's one of the big things that I kind of scream into the void about. We can add as much, as many renewable, you know, generation sources as we want, behind the meter, rooftop solar, things like that. At the end of the day, why are places in California, a lot of other, uh, even Texas, getting rid of things like net metering for rooftop solar? Because the ancillary services went from being kind of an afterthought because you already had a bunch of rotating sources, you know, generating, sinking, and tying, to we really have to pay to keep either that gas plant online, that nuke plant online, or that coal plant to be able to pull all that extra power into the grid. And so that's one of the big things that, as we've seen more wind come on, like in the wintertime and things like that, we've seen basically the operating reserves and things like that look okay but we've actually had the system inertia come down and why that matters is as you add loads on it actually slows down in a very minute scale slows down the generation sources so if you have fewer things providing that reactive power the whole system kind of gets unstable and so as we've added renewables A lot of people are saying, well, we've added renewables. We're going to keep adding renewables. We're going to add another 10 gigawatts of solar. We'll be fine. You know, we're not going to have these issues. It's no free lunch. It's very expensive to operate those turbines to tie that back. And as we add load without adding more spinning reserves and spinning resources, you set the grid up. As I said, sleepwalking into failure, you set the grid up for more problems where we have to have emergency conservation
0: or we're going to lose the grid. So to dummy this down at the simplest level, an analogy, and I'm kind of making this up on the fly. We have a pot that's holding water and maybe the dispatchables are putting water in at a steady state so that you have, in effect, a a pot filling up calmly. Are renewables sitting there spewing water in kind of randomly at different things, shaking up the water? Is that the way to think about so kind that's of,
1: that's going to be a good way to think about their generation, basically their load service, where they're yeah. basically putting power into the grid. The inertia thing, which is, uh, you know, if you're not well, – I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm just a statistician by, you know
0: – I'm work. worse.
1: I'm a political science major in college. So that's even worse. That's actually my – yeah, that's my undergrad and, and master's, but we did a whole bunch of statistics. So um, the best way to think about it is if you have a big old flywheel rotating, you know, gyroscopic effect, it's got a lot of – it takes a lot of torque to actually change – direction or slow it down, you know, think it's heavy and it's spinning. As you add load to that, you're going to minutely slow it down. The problem is, is if you don't have enough inertia, so basically spinning, rotating mass, energy basically stored in the system, as you add load, as you add generation sources, you can actually cause the system to get out of sync. So one of the issues we have in ERCOT, all of our wind is in south and west. Most of our load service is in Dallas, Houston, and Austin. You have to transmit it, those imbalances mean that it requires more horsepower to keep those renewables on the grid. And that's an important factor that a lot of people don't, I'm not going to say don't think about it, it's just not as
0: discussed. Well, and I, I, I like to think of myself somewhat educated, although I'm an oil and gas guy by background, I like to think of myself somewhat educated. I'd never heard that portion of the, uh, of the story. Well, and respectfully, why would you? Um, and
1: I don't mean that in any sort of derogatory way, like this is something that, people who manage the plants worry about. This is something that the policymakers who sit on the ERCOP board worry about. I hope people at the PUC worry about it. I'm not insulting them. I don't know how, if you're you know an unelected bureaucrat, you necessarily know this. Um, and again, like these are the kind of details of grid management, grid operations, that even go well beyond me. Um, you know, I'm fundamentally you know, data-driven and you know, we have data-driven products. We you know, trade in this, these markets and we care about the wholesale side. There's a lot of details that if you don't really pay attention, you're like, well, shoot, yeah, we just add photovoltaic, no big deal. More wind, load service, good to go, bingo, don't have to worry about it. Actually planning and operating the grid is a difficult job. And ERCOT in particular has a very difficult job uh, given that we've, like I said, we've kind of sleptwalked into this. New York has these issues. SPP, which manages power from Oklahoma up through North Dakota and kind of the center part of the country, they're having these issues. MISO mid independent system operator connects into, well, touches Texas, partially connects with DC, goes all the way up into you know, Saskatchewan, Canada, in between PJM. They have these issues. We had issues where New York almost went down last year. This is not something that's unique to Texas. Texas has not done a particularly bad job. It's just difficult when we've added these new generation resources and there's been large political pushes, kind of, I'm going to say, in absence of any real thought and theory as to Oh hell, what happens when we do really push the grid? We we have issues.
0: So, so we'll talk just a little bit about Winter Yuri because everybody Winter Storm URI because everybody everybody remembers that, but just to sort of summarize what we just talked about, you know, the 35% up in in electric retail sales over the last 20 years. I was eyeballing a graph, so tell me if I was generally correct about it. It feels like dispatchables have stayed about the same. That's additions of natural gas-fired, retirement of nuclear and coal. But if you just looked over the last twenty years, it stayed about the same, and that thirty-five percent has really been filled up by renewables, primarily wind, being built. That that's kind of how we built our grid on the on the power side, and so we've gone from. And I'll just say it's about. 30% of our generation is, is wind, even nameplate, name, nameplate. name, play any given day is different, but we've basically gone from a world where damn near a hundred percent was dispatchable right. nuclear, coal, et cetera, to now two thirds is something like that. And so the, the, the day that, that wind doesn't blow the day that it's cloudy, where we don't pick up the solar, It's an issue we have to deal with.
1: Yes. Um, Not only is it an issue we have to deal with, there's a lot of proposed solutions for it. Batteries, uh, again, there's a lot of different solutions. The problem is, unfortunately, a lot of people are representing, like, we add Tesla batteries to the grid. It'll magically fix it because it can provide ancillary services. No. There's a lot of control and other issues. We can't just keep adding photovoltaics and just expecting it to be okay. You know, by the same token, a lot of people are adding PV to their house. Well, I'm okay because I'm reducing my load. Well, no, it doesn't directly work. You're behind the meter, things like that. There's a lot of okay, small I got to take you off to
0: tell you this story. So oh, yeah. I, I live in Richmond, Texas. I have police department, fire department, hospital surrounding me. So I think I'm never going down. I'm that part of the grid or that part of the system that's never going to go down. Winter storm Uri happens, boom, lights go out. Yep. And my house starts freezing. So anyway, that's kind of fact number one. Fact number two, my dad has always been the early adopter of technology. He bought the first VCR ever made. He's just that guy. Uh, So anyway, dad goes out and on the vacant lot next to his house buys solar panels, has the Tesla batteries Mm -hmm. on the house. And we're talking about it. And I go, hey, dad, that's great. But how much did that cost? He said $125,000. Exactly. And I said, okay. And he goes, but I never have to buy electricity ever again. And I go, well, what does that mean, dad? Did you do some 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 math on that? And he goes, yeah, it's a 12.3 year payback. And I go, dude, you're 80. I love you. I want you around to see payback. Right. But it's, so anyway, So so that's fact number two. So... I put my cat in the cat carrier with my house pitch black, freezing cold, and I go over to my parents' house because, of course, they have, they have power. So I walk in, I sit down, and uh, my dad under his breath goes, 12.3-year payback doesn't sound so bad right about now, does it, Joke? <laughs> and see, that, that's okay if you're maybe like us.
1: You know, we went to college, you know, we earn you know, well above, you know, the median income of like $73,000 a year. I think it's that. I think it's right. increased from 43 over the last 20, whatever. Stats. I, don't, I don't. I'm still unemployed. But yeah. yes. So that's the point is it's fine. You know, if you've been professionally successful or you own a small business, you can have a natural gas generator because I don't want to go down during a hurricane. Right. A lot of other people are like that. The problem is you live in an apartment. You work a normal job. You work hard. Right. You shouldn't have to worry about that eventuality. And that's kind of the issue that a lot of the average customer has to worry about is, well, shoot, what happens if my high rise loses power? I can't put a gen set that'll power my whole apartment on my patio. Right. And it really that's kind of the pernicious issue is what do you do about the average customer, the average person, the average load entity? Not everybody can have a generator. Not everybody yeah. can really you know, rely on that. So that's why from a policy standpoint, you look at ERCOT and you look at across all the control districts in North America, you're like, hey, you know, these prolonged outages are bad. They hurt people. They can kill people. We kind of have to say as much as we want renewable penetration, and that's the problem is it sounds like I think renewables are some boogeyman. Not at all. We just haven't really anticipated or planned for how do we onboard all of this onto the grid like right now we're kind of stressed on the grid because we have a low wind
0: day. That's not good. It's it's very hot here. It's 100 degrees. So, uh we talked about this yesterday on the BDE show. Colin and I do a weekly summary on the energy business and we talked about the grid and I'm not anti-wind either. It's just we haven't priced reliability into the system. Correct. And I don't know the the whole tax code well enough. But I know I've been pitched deals where, hey, Chuck, invest in this wind farm and through tax credits, we get all our money back. So if it makes any money, that, that, that's our upside. And so there's definitely been a big push from the federal government to have wind assets out there. And so I think that's distorted the economics of power generation competing somewhat, the subsidies. Am I fair there? No, you are fair there. And that's
1: one of the things where I say we sleptwalk into this because fundamentally, we look at a market design of ERCOT, it's an energy-only design. If I have a generation resource that can bid in less expensively, you're kind of anti-consumer if you're saying, oh, no, no, I don't want you bidding in because you're not reliable. So the mechanism's been, yeah, add the PV. That's way less expensive for consumers. It's going to run, yeah, in the middle of the day. It's going to have a heavy load service. May have some ramp at the end of the day, whatever. We'll deal with those issues. Same thing with wind. Yes, it's far less expensive. We're going to bid it in. It's essentially, it's not free. There's ongoing capital costs, all sorts of other things. But functionally, it looks free. We get it in there. We don't have to worry about the reliability. We got enough, you know, thermal that'll pick it up. No big deal. The problem is, That works in small scale. So you look at, I'm just using SPP because they're directly north of us. What's servicing the bulk of their load right now? It's 30%, excuse me, 30% uh, natural gas and about 35% coal. So that's a teeny tiny sliver of the rest of their load service that has to be renewables. Texas, kind of like California, we are heavily renewables. So when we get down to it, we bid in less expensively. It's always a good thing. Less expensive, you know, prices for consumers are good but there is no reliability component. So there are some grid operators in North America that have that. I'm not necessarily suggesting that we need that. The problem is because of, as you said, subsidies, other market design issues, it bids in less expensively. So by default, we have to add this to the resource list. We have to add this to the dispatch. So because of that, we've kind of sleptwalk into this where now we're saying, whoa, why all of a sudden is the grid unreliable? Well, you add these resources over so many years, you don't really change the composition. You don't have an excess ancillary services component. I'm using Texas as an example to, you know, cover that for generation tie and so on. You end up with the, not going to say a fully distorted market, but things get a little weird in the extreme times. The bulk of the year, not much of a concern. It's becoming more of a concern because of the renewable comp- composition of the, pro- you know, basically the generation profile. But, you know... Three years ago, we wouldn't have been having this conversation. Nobody cared.
0: So I got, a, I got a message from a listener of the podcast who basically said this. So what do we do? Do we light a pile of capital on fire to build enough renewables that it's not an issue? Uh, the shale plays say hello, <laughs> or do or do we try to build ten gigawatts of natural gas that the feds are trying to regulate out of existence over the next ten years? Also setting a pile of capital on fire since the plants won't pay out before the feds crush them. I mean, is it? I it, he was obviously being very funny, sure, uh, and somewhat cynical, but I mean, is that kind of our choices going forward?
1: Well, and and that's going to be the unfortunate thing. There is an easy solution to this, and we've known the solution for years. It's build more dispatchable thermal. That is just out of vogue. Um, It's basically been denuded either through, I mean, the, the polite way to say it is, even if there's not necessarily a regulation around it, talk of regulation is, well, why would we go invest capital? If I'm a public company, that's a bad thing to do, to go burn a bunch of cash building renewable power plants. Even though independent private renew, or probably uh, power plant developers, historically like Tenaska and things like that, they aren't building large coal plants anymore. They aren't building huge gas power plants. Jeff Sprecher runs ICE. He doesn't build power plants anymore. That's kind of where we get to a point where we either have to start doing brownfield redevelopment, which, you know, somebody's got half a billion bucks they want to stake me with, I'll go build some gas turbines. The newest generation are fantastic. But that's really what we need. We either need to redevelopment of brownfield. We need to basically backfill for more gas generation. Why am I saying gas generation? Even at the current spark spread, it's relatively cheap. Um, sure, coal's less expensive. I'm just realistic. We're not going to get more coal plants
0: built. Well, and this is your point earlier of your backdoor regulation, because it's the EPA and the FERC sitting there saying, Correct. sure, go ahead. And uh, so it's not as simple as Austin can uh can uh solve it um no this is this has been really interesting, kind of one other thing, and it may take forever and and uh and we don't do it, but is do you have a short version of kind of what happened during winter yuri absolutely yeah uh, the the short version was um and I'll use my own
1: personal experience as a caveat. I watch the weather closely because I'm involved in energy trading, um so I saw this coming this was. If you looked at basically the weather chart, I'm still befuddled (laughs) how everyone was caught so off guard by it. We knew cold weather was coming. But largely what happened was during the wintertime, during either either extreme event, let's barbell it, extreme heat, extreme cold, which Texas does get. We had a similar event in 2011 where we had thermal plants trip uh, up by Dallas because we, I shouldn't say trip. Um, They basically had their gas storage freeze up. We couldn't generate. It was a problem. It was not a large prolonged problem. And typically when we've had cold spells, maybe 12 hours max, bad, very bad, but not nearly the three day duration that we had with Yuri. So really what happened starting that Sunday night was we knew it was going to be bad. And by we, I mean people watching power closely. We knew there was going to be excessive demand. And even though we didn't eclipse the all time load record, I'm pretty sure if we could have supported it, we would have been pushing close to 90 gigawatts. I know it's a controversial thing to say. Most people will argue ERCOT said it was, you know, instantaneously, maybe like 78. It was pushing 90. So that Sunday night, as temperatures started dropping, our plants here are not rated to run below freezing. Why would our, you know, peaker plants be rated to run below freezing? They run in the middle of the summer. They run maybe, you know, for a very- It's August, I mean, that's, yeah. They they run for maybe a hundred hours a year. They do not care about the other, you know, 8,300 hours per year. Or whatever it is, apologies. They don't care. They're not designed to do that. We don't pay for a liability. So we aren't, you know, we as the, you know, consuming public are not paying grid operators. We're not paying a variety of folks to maintain those plants in a fashion that can run below freezing. So if you look at our plants, especially our gas peakers and things like that, they're open. They aren't shrouded. They aren't enclosed. You go to Colorado, North Dakota, New York, they're enclosed to keep things from freezing. Cooling water, things like that, turbine, uh, turbine gas, uh, basically flow and things like that for cooling. Not insulated here because it's hotter than hell. Why would you want to insulate a power plant? You're going to basically you know, deal with decreases of efficiency because you can't rent the plant as hot, so on and so forth. So there's engineering, good engineering reasons why. So as the prices started dipping, what also started ramping? Well, most people heat their homes with natural gas here, but most of our homes are not really that well insulated. So what do people go plug into the wall? Space heat. Well, yeah, because you don't want your pipes to freeze, your kids right. are cold, simple things like that. So the <laughs> your power just started skyrocketing in price. And the reason it skyrocketed in price was that was a signal to get the plants online. Well, then a lot of the plants, because it became so cold so quickly and uh, parts of North Texas below zero, plants froze up. Couldn't get gas out of the gas storage fields. Um, you know, set aside all the issues in the Permian, but you know the Permian was freezing up. You know, we don't have glycol heaters on compressor stations because, again, why the hell would you have glycol heaters on yeah. all of our compressor stations? So all of those, there's a
0: lot of water in produced natural gas. There's I a mean, ton,
1: yeah. Well, and then if you have any sort of hot gas and you got a you know NGL fractioner, that's going to form ice, right? I mean, there's there's all these things that yes, we know how to deal with it, but that's such an exceptional cold event that. We don't really design around that, you know, from a reliability engineering standpoint, why would you go torch $100 billion designing our grid to deal with, let's just say, like, two standard deviations below the average temperature? So I'm sorry I'm being long winded, but basically what happened was you had all those nice little events hit start Sunday Sunday night. So to actually keep the grid from islanding, which means basically disconnects all your plants trip, like what happened to Northeast Blackout in 03, they basically, ERCOT, the control district, said, we have to start turning off load. And it's a very drastic measure. Uh, EEA 3, which is what we call it, um, is kind of scary because you start shutting off load, it's not really easy to get it back on. And this isn't something where a guy you know, sitting in downtown Houston for you know, center point says, I hit a button and this goes off. No, you have somebody driving a truck, go out and flip basically a recloser on a substation, and then you shut off however many thousands of users. So once you start doing that, that's why the duration was so long, because as long as the temperatures were so low, we couldn't get enough generation to turn everything back on. So that's why they're called rotating outages. They basically rotate through the substations to keep the total load low enough that ERCOT would stay up. And the reason why people are saying, well, we should have just risked it. Absolutely not. If we would had an islanding event, which is where we actually take the entire grid down. It worked in 03 to get it back up after about five days. We don't know how long it could have taken to get back up. Um, and the problem is that you have to go with dark start. There's a lot of things there that we've actually never tested for good reason. You, you know, you can simulate and model this, but we don't know what would happen. We don't It's know bad
0: wrong. It's bad <laughs> wrong. We don't
1: know if we could get the grid back within a month. Um, you know, a lot of people say that was a very dire, you know, prediction. No. So what ERCOT did was the self-preservation technique. Start shutting off load. Just shut it off, you know, and we'll have to deal with the consequences because it could have been so much worse and even significantly more costly to consumers. So it's kind of, that's really what it came down to. And people, ERCA could have had a better communication strategy. Um, The basically load serving entities could have done a better job rotating people instead of keeping it out for 12 hours, an hour here or there. That would have prevented problems. It's just, it's a complicated scenario that, people were doing the best they could in really unprecedented times. And unfortunately, people did die. Um, And that's one of the things that why the State Public Utilities Commission, State Senate and House have had to, you know, work with the governor to try to prevent. Um, You can't have 100% reliable electrical grid. If if you need 100% reliable electricity, you either need to spend the money and get Tesla Powerwalls and photovoltaics, or you need a gas generator. Uh, and unfortunately that's not a solution for everyone so really what it boiled down to was really cold weather way too much demand we have a grid that doesn't have a lot of dispatchable resources add all those in and you just have outages
0: and rotating and and again i don't want to come off as bashing wind no. but I was going to, I think it's the FAA websites at the various airports. So I was using Amarillo as a proxy for some wind. I was using um, South Texas, the big wind farm down there. There's a local airport near. Because you get miles per hour of wind, and I can't remember exactly my statistics, so I'll sort of make this up, but it's close. I think during that four- or five-day period, there was one, only one eight hour block where wind was over 20 miles per hour in any of what I was using as the proxies for wind. So, I mean, and, and so, and I'm again, not bashing wind. It's just the nature of it. If the wind right. doesn't blow, it doesn't blow. So we didn't have the wind resources. The natural gas did not fire up nope. because it wasn't designed to, uh, to do that. the, the story i heard and i don't know if this is true but it's such a funny story well it's not a funny story because there were bad consequences of it but the nuclear plant that had to shut down in south texas because the sensor went out and it couldn't measure the water temperature i heard there was an engineer saying there guys i'll put my hand in the water i'll let you know when it's warm let's not shut this in but they had to it well and that's
1: it, one of the we won't go into this because I could probably talk for four hours about uh, basically our idiocy across the world about turning away from you know, nuclear generation. It's because of the rules from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as to how plants can operate. Nuke plants are fundamentally safe. Um, set aside, you know, Fukushima Daiichi or, you know, I mean, Chernobyl is a horrible example. Those are exceptionally rare. And nuclear energy is incredibly safe. Terawatts of power generated a year no issues. I mean, there's less radioactive release from those than a banana. I mean, I know that's a bit of a hyperbolic statement, but they're very safe. But because of that safety aspect, you have a sensor go out, you have any little thing go out, a plant's going to go down. And we were building reasonably safe. We're not going to say like with our modern design series, reasonably safe plants starting in the 60s and 70s. And then we just stopped. So a lot of our plants are old. We have you know sensor issues. There's They're just complicated beasts. And so we've kind of turned a blind eye to that. And if you have a grid like ours where you have one unit go down at the South Texas Nuclear Facility, that's a big issue when you're in the cold. And because we only have one nuke plant, it's not like you know, we have a lot of other base load generation that really would help make um, the additional renewable build make sense. Uh, I know it's a wordy way to say it, but we've kind of, we're kind of missing that piece. We're missing either gas turbines, coal plants, or nuke to really bring more renewables onto the grid. And I'm deeply
0: skeptical of batteries as the magic solution. Yeah. Have you heard Joe Rogan's take on nuclear? No, I have not. So Joe Rogan's take on nuclear, similar to yours, it's fundamentally safe. He says, the problems we had, you know, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, he goes, they were built in the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s. And he goes, we fundamentally, as a world, sucked manufacturing in the 60s and 70s. Have you driven a car from the 70s? They were horrible. So it's not nuclear per se that's the issue. The issues we had is just we were really bad at building stuff back then that we wouldn't be bad at today. Uh, An excellent
1: example of how to operate a nuclear fleet without killing anyone, U.S. Navy. Yeah. We've done it for almost 70 years now. There's tons and tons of additional resources. I should say engineering resources that make nuke plants safe. Um, Yeah, I'm not some nuclear evangelist. I don't have, you know, unlike a lot of people working renewables or, you know, batteries and things like that, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just, I'm just your average Texas consumer. I write, you know, power pricing models as, you know, part of my day to day. You know, I don't, I don't really care. Nuke is a good way to do it. Nuke allows more renewables onto the grid. And that's why you've seen a lot of people fighting, uh, like in California, to keep Diablo Canyon open, which is a huge nuke plant on the beach. It's really pretty. Um, go google it if you haven't seen it before a lot of people pushing to keep things like that open because we've slept walked into this crisis you know we have a huge drought going on in the western united states right now that's a problem a lot of the western grid is hydro yeah so we've kind of moved to this point where we've increased load we haven't really increased our investment in fundamentally what we need to keep the lights on and the solution of conservation doesn't work if it's hot. I'm sorry. People need to be able to stay cool. We need to be able to keep our computers running, our economy running, so on and so forth. Asking people just to cut back is
0: not going to keep us safe. It's not going to keep us lit. Yeah, we can we can definitely do a little bit of that with technology, but not in a big way. I mean, everybody wants their iPhone. I mean,
1: no, and even and even worse. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you know, how do you how do you tell a nursing home that we need to cut power consumption thirty percent? Right. I mean, he kills you know elderly. I mean. It's a lot of simple things like that that when you sit down and think about it, we do not have the
0: capacity to cut 25% to meet whatever target. And I promise I won't get on the soapbox, but let's even step that up to how do we tell Africa that? No, we're getting to live over here with MTV and Coke and, and all that sort of stuff. But you guys? We've gotten ours. You go to hell, essentially. It's not, it's
1: not a good strategy. And unfortunately, a lot of the bluster and talk. Um, is not engineering-based or practical-based as how do we keep the lights on, how do we do it for the least marginal production cost, the cheapest way to do it. It's more we need this, you know, we're shoving a round peg into a square hole. We need renewable. You don't just randomly add it and expect everything to stay fine. So that's really where we are. Um, We're having another low wind performance day, even though it's not quite as hot. So we're probably going to have some conservation alerts. That's that's just kind of our reality
0: now. Yeah. No, the uh, the two things I'll I'll close on. Colin and I were talking about nuclear probably three or four months ago on the BDE show. And Colin said, you know, if we invented nuclear yesterday, we'd all be heralding that we'd solved it, you know? And it, it really is the baggage of the past. And then Monday, yeah, we got bailed out because of the rain in central texas i mean central texas averaged 80 instead of 110 because it happened to rain i i can't ask farmers about depending on rain it's not a good thing
1: no and i'm i'm you know if you're listening i'm rubbing my face and head um mostly because we got lucky we've been getting lucky um if you get a little bit of rain over a big load center like houston that'll instantaneously cut load the problem is we keep patching it along, we keep not really worrying about the market design. We're gonna end up with another winter storm Uri. Maybe this summer may not be for another five, 10 years. And it's not necessarily saying it'll be in the winter. Good thing is we have rotating outages this time of year, it'll only be a couple hours, things will be back. That's still not great if you have little kids at home or you have, again, elderly things that matter, produce, so on and so forth, expecting everyone to basically either have battery backups, their own battery backups, their own, you know, localized generation just isn't the solution we kind of have reached a point where we need to sit down rationally from a policy standpoint and say how do we fix the market design to incentivize basically cooperative work between the renewables and thermal instead of having
0: renewables and thermal kind of on opposite ends of the generation spectrum yeah you're you're absolutely right well campbell you were really cool to come on i uh i appreciate this a lot the uh like uh like i was saying I, i wish we could check politics at the door and actually have a thoughtful conversation because we're freaking Texans. We ought to be able to run a grid. It's, it's hot. We need to be able to keep the lights on. You know, it,
1: that's, that's the issue. Uh, hopefully, I think the dialogue is changing. Um, and I think it will change because at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, your state representatives are catching hell for good reason. They got to make sure that the Public Utilities Commission steps on top of ERCOT and make sure they're doing their job and I really do think that we'll find a solution to it and it'll probably be our own solution, which I like better anyway.